We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Formerly legal counsel to President Trump, Jenna Ellis. Good morning. Good morning. And in the midst of all of the headlines, the news of the day, the politics, the analysis that we always discuss on this show, I want to take today and step back a little bit and have a broader 30,000 foot perspective of why Christians must care about civil government and why we as Americans need to understand our U.S. Constitution in context and the laws of nature and of nature's God. So we talk about that uh, in segments in this show and an analysis, but I wanted to take the full hour today to do a more deep dive into the U.S. Constitution, the founding, and the framework, because it's important as we argue for morality, the biblical worldview in civil society, to understand why our U.S. Constitution actually provides our ability as Christians to not only freely exercise our religion, but it obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. For the first time in world history, our founders put that worldview statement into the Declaration of Independence and provided the mandate for civil government here in America. Now, the left would tell you that the U.S. Constitution is a fluid document. It's something that can be amended and changed at whim uh, by Supreme Court opinion, can be read into, can be parsed out and changed and any of these terms or clauses as the Supreme Court likes to interpret it uh, can really bend to an ever-evolving ethos and uh, pragmatic practice in society. And that's simply not true. If we look at a written document as a written instrument, uh, whether it's the U.S. Constitution, it is a civil contract, it is a bill of sale, it is a property lease, it is even the Bible as a written text. We have to interpret and understand not only what the document portends to be, understand is it a historical document, is it a legal document, what is it, and what is the author's intent. This is the proper hermeneutic or the understanding of how to interpret a written document. And so the U.S. Constitution is very, very clear. And yet, often when politicians or commentators or political analysts refer to the Constitution, or even the Supreme Court refers to the Constitution, they will take one word or phrase out of context, build an entire doctrine around it, and then suggest that something totally antithetical to the original text is the plain meaning. 
And unfortunately, that mirrors what pastors do quite often with scripture. They will take one word or phrase or verse or even chapter and manipulate that into the message that they would prefer to speak. And so I come from a, a Calvary Chapel background, non-denominational, the original Calvary Chapel uh, view of you know the Chuck Smiths and the Greg Lauries of the world that is obviously Protestant, evangelical Christian, but verse by verse teaching through scripture. And so when a pastor and, and when my pastors um, appro- approach the text, they are looking to discover what the text itself is teaching, not coming predisposed with a message that they prefer to speak and then looking for text that supports that and backs it up, but actually taking verse by verse teaching. And and I truly believe that that is the best way to read scripture, to interpret scripture, and to take the entire counsel of God from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation and understand the entire narrative of what God's special revelation is teaching. And in the very same way, and I'm not at all making a comparison of the Bible as a divinely inspired, inerrant, sufficient uh, word of God to the U.S. Constitution, which I believe was um, was definitely created with God's blessing, but it's not in the same way divinely inspired text, any of that. I'm just making the comparison that they're written documents. We read them, right? That, that's the same thing. So in terms of the hermeneutic or the approach to interpretation, we have to, as Americans and as Christians and as concerned citizens, approach the U.S. Constitution in a way that we are not predisposed to go looking for a word or clause or phrase in the text that we want to manipulate into our theory and our argument, but approach it as what the text is actually saying. And we have to understand the U.S. Constitution, the four corners of the document, as we would say in the legal profession, but we also have to look at the a broader scope of the U.S. Constitution in the context or, um, as Justice Scalia would have framed it, the legislative history or how the U.S. Constitution was originated and the history there. And so that's why we go back to the founding legal documents, particularly the Declaration of Independence. And so in the scope of world history as the founders were separating from uh, England, they were putting off uh, the English king and parliament and saying that because our rights were so infringed upon, it wasn't a, um, a, a mere slight inconvenience. It was something that so was so drastically uh, impermissible morally that it was a, not only an obligation, but a duty and a right of those citizens to alter and and actually abolish their government and set up a new government. And so the Declaration of Independence, in terms of, of American history, I like to call it the first legal document in America's history. And they put it out as a civil statement to the world. And they even say that in the text of the declaration, uh, that they are putting this out to the, the, the world for the rectitude or the moral uprightness of their intention, because this wasn't a rebellion 
that was against authority in an unrighteous manner. What they did, our founders did with the declaration was appealed to a higher authority. So for example, in in the civil uh, court uh, analogy, if I go in on behalf of a client in a civil courtroom and I don't like what the trial judge has ruled, then I can appeal to a higher authority, the court of appeals. Then you can appeal to the Supreme Court, whether that's the state or federal level, depending on obviously what uh, court process, whether it's the state or federal that you're in. And you can appeal to that higher authority. And that's not rebellion against the trial judge or the court of appeals. That's simply going through the process of the higher authority. And what our founders recognized is that the highest authority the divine lawgiver, the author of all things, is God himself, the God of the Old Testament, the person of truth, and Jesus Christ. Now, we can have the conversation about whether or not the founders were specifically uh, the best examples of of Christians and, uh, and whether they were saved. We can have that whole conversation. But for the conversation about the legislative history and what our founding documents actually say, it really doesn't matter. I know that a lot of you in the AFR family, like me, are huge fans of Tim Barton and others who will make arguments about the sincerity of the founders' faith, and they point to a lot of evidence, and, and that's great. But for a legal purpose and for a legal argument, which is my apologetic for uh, the the moral basis of our founding, it actually doesn't matter whether the founders were sincere Orthodox Christians. Why? Well, imagine that we are in court arguing about the text of a law that has been passed by Congress. Does it matter whether the majority uh, who voted for that bill are sincere Christians or not? Does it matter what their faith is? Does it matter their personal beliefs? Does it matter um, the president who would have signed it into law? Does it matter whether he's a Republican or Democrat or personal life or, or his faith? No, what matters to the interpretation of the law and understanding what it says, it matters what's within the four corners of the document. So for the purpose of a legal argument for our nation's founding being on a Judeo-Christian premise, we can actually set aside the founders in terms of who they were personally. What actually matters more is who they were professionally. And interestingly, the Declaration Committee of the five uh, drafters of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson being uh, one of the the uh, the most heavyweights, of course, in that Declaration Committee, were all actually lawyers. They were uh, well-versed in the knowledge of law. And there's a difference, of course, between lawyer and attorney. We use those terms kind of simultaneously um, in our regular lexicon, but there's actually a difference. Being a lawyer means that you are trained in or knowledgeable about the substance and subject matter of the law. So when I went through law school as a lawyer and earned my Juris Doctor degree, I became a lawyer. Being an attorney means that you have power of attorney. Even non-lawyers can have power of attorney. A lot of you out there would have medical power of attorney uh, for elderly family members, or you might have power of attorney uh, for your HOA, for example. Um, so you would be able to go in and represent someone or an entity's interests in court having power of attorney. Being a licensed attorney and through our process in America of passing the bar, then being licensed as an attorney 
attorney and having power of attorney means that then you can go out and professionally take on clients' interests and represent them in a court of law. And so those are two very separate things. And our founders weren't all attorneys, but most of the signers of the U.S. Constitution and the five uh, men who were on the Declaration Committee were lawyers. They were substantively and professionally educated in the law. And I, and I often get the the objection to um, you know some of the expertise uh, that, you know, we don't have to be an, an expert as, as a layperson, as a citizen in reading the U.S. Constitution. It was made for everyone, we the people. That's all true. But I think you would agree with me that having a substantive expertise in the law absolutely helps the interpretation and the understanding, just like if you are educated through seminary uh, through uh, or through theology, and whether that's a traditional matriculating academic forum, or you have just studied on your own, studying substantively a subject matter makes you more well-versed or have an expertise. You don't have to go through college to become a trade craftsman and be an expert in a certain subject matter or field. Um, just like you don't have to go through law school to understand more and be uh, be well-versed in law more than others who haven't studied it. Just like I didn't go to seminary, but I would say because of the theological training that I have had through first uh, all of the years of homeschooling, then studies, and then of course through my church, um, substantive theology classes, I am more well-versed in theology than someone who hasn't studied it at all. So we do have a level of expertise that we need to talk about. And when we're talking about the U.S. Constitution as a legal document, when we're talking about the Declaration of Independence as a legal document, it absolutely helps to understand the law and understand substantively how law works and how it moves and shapes a legitimate uh, civil society and the difference between legitimate and illegitimate uh, law and policy. And our founders understood all of that. And that's important in their substantive uh, profession of studying the law, because they understood not just from a you know farmer, torch-building villager sort of perspective of, hey, we want to overthrow the, the English government and the parliament, and so we're going to get together and create somehow by you know, sheer um, will, <laughs> the, the greatest civil document that has governed a society or a republic as we have it through world history. It wasn't an accident. It was because they understood not only the profession of law, the legitimacy of law, but they also understood world history. They understood civil government. That's what we need to understand as American citizens if we want to protect and preserve our civil government. So we'll be talking about this more when we come back here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. I'd like to 
take a minute to have a heart-to-heart with you. If you're able, place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it? My strong heartbeat reminds me that I'm alive. See, it's the same for an unborn baby. Their heart begins to form at conception and at just three weeks is already beating. At five weeks, a baby's heartbeat can be heard on an ultrasound. That's where Preborn steps in, rescuing 200 babies every day from abortion simply by providing a mother with a free ultrasound and allowing her to hear her child's heartbeat and see their perfectly formed body in the womb. By six weeks, eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to suck his or her thumb. Preborn needs our help to save these precious souls. For just $28, you could be the difference between the life or death of a baby. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or donate securely at preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are taking this day out of the top stories and the analysis and the commentary of what's going on today in the world to talk about the broader perspective of understanding our U.S. Constitution in context. And this is why I love, love, love our Constitution, because we need to understand why our founders gave us first the Declaration of Independence, that wonderful, wonderful worldview statement uh, that they hold truth as self-evident that all men are created equal and obligated our government to preserve and protect the rights that we recognize come from God, our creator. And then the rationale for why they created the U.S. Constitution and Uh, did that with putting off the Articles of Confederation that at the time did not allow for a powerful enough federal government. So they needed something else. They sent delegates from the state to the Constitutional Convention. It was a legitimate convention because that was allowed under the Articles of Confederation. And they created the U.S. Constitution as our supreme law. And we need to, as Christians and as conservatives, not just understand our current political time frame and the policy issues uh, that we hold very dear. Those are all important, but we need to understand the root and the base of what our U.S. Constitution provides for our civil government, the limited specific powers of government uh, for the federal government and then to the states and also power to we the people. Um, That's not talked often enough uh, that powers of government are actually given to we the people. Not everything, not all powers of government are given to elected officers on the federal or the state level. So parental rights, for example, um, education rights, healthcare rights, all of these things and these decision-making abilities, I'm talking about power of attorney, those powers are given to individuals. And it's the limited powers through the state and the federal constitutions that we give limited specific authority to certain branches of government uh, to act. But anything that is not given to those branches of government is reserved to we the people. This is one of the amazing uh, constructs of our U.S. Constitution is that instead of giving all powers to the government in return for protection, which is what 
a lot uh, a lot of what was going on in uh, European nations over the uh, the thousand years or so before uh, our founders then put off the English government and parliament and created the constitution, what would often happen, and, and especially in feudal societies and during um, you know all of these different wars that that we should all know about in terms of uh, the English history, often what would happen is that the serfs would come to the landlords or to the lords and in exchange for protection the lord would own the land own all of the rights all of the property and treat the serfs basically almost like slaves and then there the magna carta was one of the first ways that the people said to the English crown, wait a minute, we need to reserve certain protections so that we are not just at the whim of whoever is wearing the crown in terms of how we can exercise our rights, what justice looks like, what civil government looks like. And the Magna Carta was one of uh, several inspirations for our U.S. Constitution in terms of recognizing and enumerating and articulating natural rights that flow from God to each and every human being made in the image of God. So the history matters. But what is so unique about our U.S. Constitution is that our founders recognize that we the people retain all of our rights. It is a duty and an obligation of government to protect those rights. And we don't give up anything in exchange for that protection. All that we do through our U.S. Constitution is through our authority and through the will of the people through our consent as as the US Constitution says we give specific limited powers to certain branches of government on the federal and state level to operate so that they have the power to protect our individual rights. And if the government abuses that power like we're kind of seeing today in a lot of instances we could talk about then it is the right of the people under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution to alter those powers. We can take away powers from federal government branches. We can alter it. We can amend it. We, the people, have that right. We can do that through our elected representatives on the federal level in Congress, or we can do that through our state-level representatives through a convention of the states. There's two different ways to amend our U.S. Constitution. And then, of course, whatever amendments would come out of either Congress or a convention of the states would have to be ratified by a supermajority of three-fourths of the states. But our founders recognized that this is a work in progress. We will continue to perfect a more perfect union, right? That, that's what they talked about. And they understood that as civil civil society changes and continues to evolve that some of the powers uh, that are designed in the original intent of the U.S. Constitution and the original text may not necessarily be the best way to preserve and protect our rights, which is the mandate of the Declaration as we continue. So they made a way to amend it. But the way that they did not, did not allow for amending the Constitution is through the United States Supreme Court. That's actually become the easiest way and the way most often used is by the Supreme Court issuing an opinion, interpreting the Constitution, whatever the whim of the majority of the Supreme Court says, and that then has become the controlling law of the land. It was never intended for that. If you look at Article 3 of the Constitution, which talks about our judiciary, the the uh, the uh, the Supreme Court and all other such inferior courts on the federal level are still under 
the U.S. Constitution. They derive their legitimate authority from the Constitution itself, and they only have power insofar as the U.S. Constitution gives it to them. And the U.S. Constitution only has power insofar as we, the people, consent. Now, how do we revoke our consent? Well, not through uh, simply, you know, whining about it on social media, not simply through elections, um, not through simply refusing to obey uh, our civil government. No, the way that we revoke our consent is through the Amendment Article 5 process. This is why I and Mark Levin and, and, and many others are advocates of the Convention of States project because the federal government isn't going to restrain itself. The weaponization of government is never going to correct itself, even if we get good people in office. With a runaway federal government, not not just a federal judiciary, but a legislative uh, and executive, we need to rein in that power. And the only way that we, the people, legitimately revoke our consent is through that amendments process. But we have to understand then our government, because often when we talk about the difference between constitutional versus unconstitutional in our common vernacular and our political discussions, that just means whatever policy we or our party happens to agree with. Well, that's not the actual definition of constitutional versus unconstitutional. It's the same thing as saying something is biblical versus unbiblical or true versus false. It, the the standard is not whether we agree with it or we think that God should bend his will according to ours. It's what the text of the Bible actually says. And in the very same way, the text of the Constitution, the specific limited powers that are given to these branches of government, we have to abide by that. And if something is constitutional or not, depends on whether or not the U.S. Constitution, or if we're talking about a state level, the state constitution actually gives power for that particular branch or agent of government to act in that way. Then if the answer is yes, the question becomes a matter of policy. Should they? But most people confuse can they with should they. And we only ever talk about the political analysis of should. So whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, the question of should then becomes the question of can. So put more simply, if a Democrat is arguing that abortion is a human right, they are arguing it should be. And so then they say, well, it's unconstitutional to deny a woman her right to choose. That has now manipulated the argument falsely to suggest that there's any power whatsoever for the federal government to permit abortion. There's nothing in the text that gives Congress the ability to tell the states that they have to provide or allow for abortions. Uh, To the contrary, the 14th Amendment requires the federal government to not infringe upon life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That means that the federal government can tell the states, hey, life begins at conception and without due process, which is a criminal context inherently, that they cannot allow abortion. So we can restrict it on the federal level under that theory. And I'm kind of coming around to to that theory that ultimately I, I or originally, I should say, I believed it was a state issue. I think that textually uh, in terms of Article one and the powers of Congress, it is a state issue. 
But in terms of the 14th Amendment, which, of course, amended the powers of the Constitution, that text can be interpreted to suggest that the federal government can limit the state's ability to foreclose life without due process. And this is why the text matters. This is why the entire context of the Constitution matters. So we as as conservatives need to understand that our U.S. Constitution provides the rule book. I, I love to give the analogy of the game of Monopoly. Um, I'm sure all of you have played this. This is um, one of my family. We we love board games, and Monopoly is no different. Um, my parents in their house all growing up, we had a game closet where there were a ton of different board games. And if you go and you play Monopoly, you play the game of life, you play checkers, you play chess, they all have different rules. The goal of chess is not to be the first one around the board like it is in uh, in other games like Sorry, for example. You have to get your uh, marbles all around the board and in home first. Um, the goal of the games are different. And that also means that the board itself is different. But most importantly, the rule book is different. Imagine that you were trying to play chess based on the rules for Monopoly. That just wouldn't work. You don't have any of the pieces. You don't have the game board. And you would also be so frustrated because there is no way to play chess and get the outcome of Monopoly to win the game. So we have to understand our rule book. And what we often don't do as conservatives and, and what the Republican Party often doesn't do is understand the strategy enough to say, let's see what the rule book says and let's play the game according to the rules so that we can get the best outcome. The U.S. Constitution is our rule book. It is the guide for how we play the game of civil society in America. And if we want to achieve the outcome of protecting our rights best, preserving liberty best, having a well-ordered, morally upright society, religious freedom against censorship, having free speech, having freedom of association, the right to petition our government for redress, having due process— all of these things, parental rights, protecting life, you name it, any of the issues that you most care about, you have to understand how the rule book operates. Otherwise, you may be unintentionally trying to move chess pieces when really you should be playing Monopoly. So when you look at the game board, and, and we'll just take Monopoly for instance, when you look at the different moves that you can make, what is going to be right if you are representing or advocating for the Scotty dog versus the top hat versus the iron or the car? That's going to mean that you have a different strategic decision in how to utilize your turn based on which piece on the board you're advocating for. And Republicans often don't have the broader 30,000 foot perspective of strategy because they may be pulling for the Scotty dog, which in our analogy here may represent pro-life causes or parental rights, but they don't understand how to use their turn and the tools that are given in the rule book, the powers of being able to use uh, their resources to best advocate for that Scotty dog. Um, and in law, we also call this issue spotting. Uh, one of the biggest things that they teach you in law school is not just the black letter law, what you or I could look up right now on um, you know, the Cornell Law website or reading a statute. A lot of people, I mean, you can read the law, 
But what law school teaches you is how to understand the context of a situation, a client situation, for example, and look at where the liability risk is. Because so many people don't even know where their risk is or where their exposure is. Even if they read the law, they know their own factual situation better than anybody else because they're living it. They need somebody to come in who understands where the potential for uh, risk is and where the potential for damage is. That's what law school teaches you. And we need to, in the very same way, understand as conservatives to look at our U.S. Constitution and the law and then issue spot and say, here in this policy scenario, if we want to advance the causes of pro-life, parental rights, uh, religious liberty, all of these issues, we have to not only understand our rule book to know how the board operates to achieve our end goal, but we have to also understand what powers we have at our disposal and the best strategy so that we can spot where the liability risk is, where the harms may be, also where the advantages are, and we can strategically move around the board of civil government and advance our policy best. So in the next segment, um, and we're about to take another break here shortly, I want to go into the actual text of the Constitution because we can talk about this all day, but do we actually understand the nuts and bolts of our founding legal document of the U.S. Constitution? The Declaration gave us our mandate. The Federalist Papers, I would encourage you to read, and the Anti-Federalists, because the Federalist Papers, though, by three attorneys, three lawyers, James Madison, uh, John Jay, who's our first U.S. Uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice, and also Alexander Hamilton. They were competent lawyers who understood that. They argued for the U.S. Constitution in its original context and form, and that legislative history and their arguments give us really good insight in how we can best understand our supreme rule book and better advocate for conservative policy. We'll be right back with more. We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say Freedom. CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24 7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. 
Welcome back. And we are talking today about the U.S. Constitution and understanding it in a legal lens and uh, why conservatives and Christians need to educate ourselves on the legal basis of our Constitution. And in fact, uh, that is precisely why I wrote a book on this subject. If you want to learn more about this, um, I have a book that's almost 10 years old now, which is absolutely crazy to me how time flies. But the title of that book is The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. It's a guide for Christians to understand our U.S. Constitution in context. And so I go through um, not only substantively the history of America's founding, our uh, legal documents from the Declaration to the Federalist Papers to the U.S. Constitution and the nuts and bolts of this, but also explain the apologetic and why we are a nation that is founded on a Judeo-Christian worldview of law. And it is important that this is not advocating that everyone has to uh, be compelled by government to come to church or to call themselves a Christian. This is not a theocracy. This is not uh, the church that is stepping into the role of civil government. All of those objections are totally nonsense. What this book is explaining is how our legal documents are written in such a way that our founders, as most of them were lawyers in the Declaration uh, Committee, those five uh, founding fathers were lawyers. And then most of the signers, I think it was 42 or 43, of the signers of the U.S. Constitution were also lawyers. They understood that God himself is the author of all things. He is, has all authority in terms of law, and he delegated specific limited authority to three spheres of government, uh, the civil government, the church government, and the family government. But they are all under his authority. So only act legitimately when they are consistent with his moral authority, with his authority. And so when we are in rebellion against that authority, and we see that was original sin, right, was rebelling against the ordained and established sovereignty of God's creation and of his created order. And so we as man have no ability whatsoever to rewrite arbitrarily the boundaries of moral truth, the difference between good versus evil, what should and is permissible in a civil society is written by God. And so when we understand that our founders gave us this document that not only protects and preserves the right of every human being made in the image of God, but also recognizes that God himself is the sovereign. It's not we the people. It's not a social contract that is our arbitrary whim of the collective or whoever is in the White House or the nine justices of the Supreme Court, that majority. God himself is the sovereign. We the people are the very same people in the that are referred to in the preamble to the U.S constitution that are referred to as being created in the image of God in our declaration and having God given rights. Very same people. So God is our sovereign. We are not a social contract nation because we understand that the origin of law and of all authority is vested in God himself, not in man. Law can only have two origins, man or not man. And if it's not man, the only other uh, avenue or or a uh, source of authority would be God. And we can talk about how we understand who the person of God is. Our founders recognized it's the God of the Bible. 
And they recognized that our rights come from God, not from man's collective judgment. They did not get together in the uh, in writing the, the Declaration of Independence and say, we collectively determine that we should have human rights and here's what they are because the majority or supermajority of all of the people in uh, the colonies at that time agree on it. No, they appealed to God's authority. Our, our nation is founded on a divine law premise. So our rationale is fixed and objective. It's not a social contract theory that's fluid and subjective. And so our interpretation of all of our laws and understanding the laws of nature and of nature's God and what makes a human right must be consistent with biblical truth. Because if the source of our legal authority is vested in the person of God, He can't be inconsistent with himself. So we are only acting legitimately and our civil government is only acting legitimately and our church and our family governments, by the way, if we are consistent with God and consistent with biblical truth. So let's take a deep dive into what our U.S. Constitution actually says, because it's very, very simple. And we need to always consider the foundation, the biblical truth, and our U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land before we start arguing the policy. Because if all we're doing is piecemealing different policy together like buffet style, then we will get an incoherent and inconsistent worldview of government. This is why we have such crazy tensions like, Well, why do we have individual rights to pursue happiness, but we are going to say that people can't change their gender? Well, don't they have that right? And even having those conversations means that our culture and our understanding of the legitimacy of law and our moral foundation is confused because liberty doesn't mean the ability to do anything we want. We don't have freedom in an anarchy sense. We have ordered liberty. That means we still have enforcement of the measurable difference between good and evil. And that is consistent with biblical truth. When the Bible says in Romans 13 that civil government will punish the evildoer, that is a tangible understanding of how we can uh, define what an evildoer is. There's a measurable objective difference between good and evil. It's not subject to man's whim and what we think evil is, but evil might change 10 years from now, right? No, it's the same thing. It's been the same yesterday, today, and forever because the person of God in truth is always the same. The Bible hasn't changed. God has not changed. So we have to be consistent. And how we do that in our United States civil society is through this wonderful document, the U.S. Constitution. And what the Constitution did was not only recognize God as the divine lawgiver and the supreme authority, the sovereign of our country, but then delegated limited powers. The government doesn't have any rights, by the way. Government only has limited power and power for a specific purpose. And the purpose in our system of government is to preserve and protect the rights of we, the people. So the limited specific powers are enumerated particularly and specifically in the articles of the U.S. Constitution. Now, there are only seven articles. There are 27 amendments. Some of the amendments I'm not a fan of. I think that we should repeal the 17th Amendment, for example. Uh, That changed the way that we elect and install United States senators in our original context, uh, how Article 1 
had uh, had differentiated between the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate to make up the Congress uh, was that the U.S. House of Representatives represent the people. So they are popularly elected by district. The U.S. Senate was originally designed to represent the state legislature so that the states would have a voice in federal government. That's why there's only two senators. Doesn't matter the population. A lot of people and the leftists out there are whining now about how California with its high density population only has two senators where Rhode Island or Wyoming also have two senators. That's by design. And the reason for that is because each state only has one legislature. They also are the same in terms of representation in the Senate. And so that was, and that's why also um, advice and consent for executive appointments for the judicial branch was is just a given to the Senate. It didn't matter what the House of Representatives thinks because it wasn't meant to have a popular election or the people. It was meant to have the state legislatures who would send their two U.S. senators. They could recall them at any time if they weren't doing the will as deputies or delegates of the state. But the 17th Amendment changed that, and now our U.S. senators are popularly elected, and there's almost no difference between the Senate and the House of Representatives anymore. But there was originally intended for that. So we can change the Constitution in ways that I think are damaging to our separation of powers in our republic. And that's why we need to be careful. But there's also good amendments. Um, obviously, the Bill of Rights, Amendments 1 through 10, I'm very happy that we have, that we have specifically enumerated Congress just in case you weren't clear, here are certain rights that individuals can exercise freely that are most often infringed by civil government. So in case you weren't clear that we didn't give you the limited power, we are expressly telling you you can't touch. First Amendment, huge issue. But here's the thing, and Justice Scalia also opined on this. There's a great YouTube clip of him testifying in front of the, uh, the Judiciary Committee. I believe it was in the Senate at the time when he was still living. And he said, the, the reason that we have so much freedom and liberty in this country is not because we have a First Amendment. He said, you know, any banana republic has, you know, a bill of rights. Okay, fine. So the reason is because we limited and separated powers. And we do that in Articles 1 through 3. So Article 1 is the legislative branch that gives all legislative authority, all means all. That means that the executive branch, the president, and the judiciary, the Supreme Court, and all of their inferior courts, they can't legislate. How many times have we talked about Obama legislating by his phone and his pen, or the uh, the Supreme Court legislating an opinion and basically creating law from the bench. That is unconstitutional. Even if we agree with the opinion, they can't. So we don't even get to the question of whether they should. They are prohibited by that because of the doctrine of the separation of powers. So Article 1 is the legislative branch. Article 2 is the presidency, everything that the executive can do very limited authority. And then the judiciary is Article 3. We are required to have a United States Supreme Court and then any other such inferior courts as Congress determines. So that's why we have the Judiciary Act. And uh, that has established our circuit courts and other federal courts. And then, of course, the president has the power to nominate uh, judges for lifetime tenure, according to Article 3. 
and uh, then the advice and consent still has to go through the Senate. And wouldn't it be great if we still lived in a system of federalism that the states had more influence and actually were represented in the federal government? We don't even talk about that anymore. But in our original design of the Constitution with federalism, the states were supposed to have a voice and they were supposed to uh, control really the United States Senate. And we need to get back to that. I would absolutely support a measure to repeal the 17th Amendment uh, for that purpose. But um, but anyway, so we have Article 1 is the legislative branch. Article 2 is the presidency. Uh, Article 3 is the judiciary. And by the way, in Article 1, Article 1, Section 8 is all of the subject matter that Congress can having the power to, not should, not what we want it to or what the left wants it to, but what it can constitutionally legislate on. You know, it's not in there. It's very, very limited, actually. There's only like, I don't know, maybe 18 or so different subject matters. What's not in there? Healthcare, education, uh, you know, privacy rights, um, you know, any of these other things that Congress thinks that it has the power to legislate on, not in Article 1, Section 8. They have no power to legislate on that. That is reserved through the Ninth and Tenth Amendment to the states or to we the people. And imagine if we actually limited Congress to Article 1, Section 8 and the actual subject matter that they could legislate on. I mean, probably 90% of their business in the legislature would be mooted out. And that's why the, the Supreme Court originally should have said, sorry, you don't have jurisdiction over this. You can't legislate on it. That's not according to your specific limited powers. But we have gotten so far from that. So then Article 4 is how the states can join the union. Interestingly, there is no provision for a secession. That's a whole other conversation that we'll get into at some point on uh, whether or not states have the right to secede. Um, that is not textually presented, but nor is it prohibited by the text. So I'll just tease it that way. Uh, Article 5 is the amendment process that we've talked about. Article 6 is the legal status of the Constitution. Very interestingly, um, in Article 6, Section 2, says this Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. So treaties are a very interesting way that the left and Washington has tried to legislate and bind the United States through treaties. Um, it's very important what treaties we make with other countries and that the language of that is consistent with our constitution. Uh, that is a, a really interesting loophole that uh, is very important for us to understand. And then the legal status of the constitution is uh, just talking about, um, the rest of it is just talking about how the, the uh, US constitution is the supreme law of the land, Article 7 is the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. And then you have the 27 amendments. That's it. So I would encourage you, get the app, download it, super easy. Read Articles 1 through 7. Familiarize yourself with how the process works. And most importantly, the limited, limited, separated powers of government on the federal level. And then when you analyze an issue and policy, ask yourself first, can Congress do this? Can the president do this? Can the judiciary do this? Federal judiciary? And if the answer to that is no, then it's unconstitutional. 
the answer is yes, then we get to the policy question of should we? Does this comport with legitimate moral authority, the things of God and truth? So again, if you want to read more about this and do a deeper dive, my book is called The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. You can get that anywhere books are sold. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.